Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. We recorded this podcast earlier in the week to discuss AB 748, the police canine law, and how we got there, as well as the constitutional policing trends and what that means. At the conclusion of the podcast, we received a text letting us know that Sacramento had effectively killed the bill for this legislative season. However, we still publish the podcast because this bill, while it may be dead this legislation season, does not mean it will not come back the next season. So now is the time for us to pay attention to what the community and legislature is telling us and offer them a more appropriate alternative. So we still think this podcast is worth a listen. As always, we hope you enjoy the show and please share it with a friend. And I would like to take a moment to thank two Cato Gold sponsors for supporting the work that Cato does throughout California. Thank you to NAG Industries and Aardvark Tactical. NAG Industries is a premier provider for a variety of government sales products like Vortex Optics, Garmin, Streamlight, and many other brands. From breaching tools and training to the latest in pickleball gear, there's a good chance NAG Industry carries it. Check them out at nagindustries.com. I would also like to thank Aardvark Tactical, who's been a steadfast supporter for many years. While Aardvark is famous for their signature Project 7 scalable plate carrier system, Sejin Robot, Low-Key Drone, and Kinetic Breaching Tool, they also offer customized integrated solutions to meet a wide variety of supply needs, such as complete crowd control kits, IED detection, less lethal, and many others. To learn more, check out aardvarktactical.com. Work-life balance is something we all struggle with in our line of work, and especially with the people who listen to this podcast. For those of you who enjoy getting away by spending some time on the lake, casting a line, our podcast sponsor is for you. Cope's Tackle and Rod Shop has been in business since 2015 and carries all of your fishing needs. They are veteran-owned and are proud supporters of Cato and our listeners of the Cato Podcast. Check out their website at tackleandrod.com, enter discount code Cato at checkout, and get 10% off your purchase and get free shipping on anything over $75. Cato is a nonprofit organization that exists to serve law enforcement so they can train their departments and make their communities safer. One of the ways we do this is through support from businesses like Cope's Tackle and Rod. So consider supporting businesses that support us. So in this episode of the Cato Podcast, I asked plank holder Gene Ramirez, famous attorney at large, who has been defending law enforcement officers his entire career, to give us a quick update on the canine laws, and then discuss kind of the history and the current trends in constitutional policing. And if you've attended any Cato training, you've heard us talk about third-party review. And the ultimate third-party review, obviously, is the public. So we're going to discuss that a little bit. But before we do, let's get an update on California's canine law as it works its way through the legislature. Gene, can you tell us a little bit about how we got there and the first draft, which we, we discussed in an earlier podcast. Well, good evening. Thank you for inviting me back. Uh, Marcus and I are actually in Redding, California. We're going to be providing training to Redding PD and some other uh, local agencies tomorrow as a transition to body-worn cameras 
when we'll be talking about BWC's use of force, de-escalation, other fun topics. But we're also going to talk about AB 742, because as we talked about the first time a few months ago, the California state legislature decided to pass or propose a law seeking to ban dogs from biting. And they only wanted police service dogs to be used for detection work or search and rescue. They did not want apprehension dogs. Well, obviously, a lot of organizations, Cal Chiefs, Cal Sheriffs, and a lot of other organizations opposed that bill. Well, most recently, AB 742 has been amended. And I don't know if it's for the better because the new language is, and I will quote from the Legislative Council's Digest, this bill would prohibit the use of an unleashed police canine by law enforcement to apprehend a person unless the person is being pursued for a felony that threatened or resulted in the death of or serious bodily injury to another person, and the person poses an imminent danger of death or serious bodily injury to the officer or to another person in any use of a police canine for crowd control. This bill would prohibit a police canine from being used to bite unless there is an imminent threat of death or serious bodily injury to the officer or another person by the person against whom the canine is used. The bill would attribute the death of or serious bodily injury to a person caused by a police canine to the canine's handler as constituting deadly force. The bill would prohibit law enforcement agencies from authorizing any use or training of a police canine that is inconsistent with this bill. My impression is this proposed amended language is actually worse than the first, because now they're equating the dogs with the use of deadly force. So if you can only use dogs in a deadly force situation, well, then doesn't that mean we should shoot that person? Because if we send a dog in and that suspect can withstand the bite for several seconds, he may be able to overcome the dog. Uh, this makes no sense. And then what really is the kicker on this, are they going to accuse the handler of using deadly force if that suspect is to die or suffer serious bodily injury? Does that mean potential criminal prosecution in addition to potential civil lawsuits? What handler in their right mind would want to deploy a dog if this is the language that's ultimately approved by our state legislature? I'm scared for our canine handlers. And again, what we're talking about here is this is a draft that's working through the system. So we've seen a pretty dramatic change from the beginning. So this may change again. For those of you that uh, listen outside of the state of California, know that this is a conversation going on throughout the country. Gene also sits on the board of a national organization for canine police dogs. And this has been a similar conversation held at the federal level. you have any thoughts on that, Gene, at the federal level? A lot of states are watching what occurs in California. State of Washington, a few years ago, raised their levels to the point where canine handlers cannot deploy unless they have probable cause to believe that the suspect has committed a crime. So it's beyond just reasonable suspicion, it's probable cause. Maryland changed their law such that 
If you are accused of excessive force, you could face a penalty of up to 10 years in state prison. And in my talks with some of the Maryland State Patrol canine handlers, they're obviously not going to deploy their dog with that potential penalty. So a lot of states are watching what happens in California. And I'm general counsel for United States Police Canine Association. We're certainly doing what we can to oppose this bill. We've been working with the American uh, the American Kennel Club. They have been absolutely wonderful in supporting the USPCA. We've been allowed to use their legislative advocate in Sacramento to get more intelligence regarding what's going on, have that legislative advocate talking to um, legislators about how we can amend this bill to include different language so that our dogs can be allowed to apprehend suspects. Uh, they've been a wonderful partner. Plus, we've been talking to other canine organizations as we partner up and doing what we can to defeat this bill because I love dogs. I believe dogs save lives. I believe dogs save time in searching buildings. But this goes back to what I said, I think, in our first podcast that we did several months ago is we need to tighten up our canine deployment policies. I've been talking for a long time that we are in danger of losing our dogs, and it has now come to fruition so if we don't do it ourselves, then we are going to see as what is happening now, the state is going to take it upon themselves to correct what is going on out there. And that causes me great concern. And in light of 835, just remember the definition of a great bodily injury that applies to the force that the government uses on an offender, but it also applies to the amount of force the offender is using. So keep that in mind when you consider 835. This is just an update. This isn't the final policy. The uh, legislature is still working through all this. When we get another major update, we'll be sure to share it with you as soon as we can. And it could pass any day. We've been talking through our representatives and our legislative advocates that this could pass any day now. Uh, it was supposed to have been voted on last week. It didn't. Again, everybody said, oh, don't worry about this gene. It's never going to make it out of the original phase, but it did. Uh, don't worry about it. It's never going to make it out of the Appropriations Committee. It did. Now it's coming up for a vote. So I am concerned. So that kind of leads us to a broader topic. <clears throat> so if you've attended any Cato classes, you know that we often talk about the, not just the legal standard, but the standard of third party review. So all policing is subject to the social contract. Those nine principles that Sir Robert Peel espoused many years ago, the foundation of Western policing. And we've all heard the term transparency and legitimacy and how we serve to enforce the laws impartially, unbiasedly, and within uh, what we would call the community's expectations, which vary. So while the laws may be the same, how we enforce those laws varies from community to community. That's the challenge and also the beauty of American policing. So what we've seen in the last decade is an increased demand for legitimacy and transparency, and uh, which is one of the reasons why uh, Gene and I have been spending time together working through updating body-worn camera policies, briefing on latest application of 835, as well as civil 
and uh, criminal law as it relates to use of force. And this kind of brings up a broader topic that we're going to continue to talk about, and that is constitutional policing. And so everyone's heard the buzzword constitutional policing, and we've seen various forms of this. So ultimately, we all work for the community. So that's a board of supervisors that are elected by the community, or it's a a city council elected by the community who then hires a city manager or county council and then sheriffs are elected, chiefs are appointed. And that's kind of how the general law enforcement structure works within California. And then we report to those people, or our executives do, and then we police and enforce the rules in the manner in which they want us to, based upon the community standards. So constitutional policing is just kind of an expansion of that. And in the past, we've seen uh, various models of that. So we see federal DOJ and Cal DOJ um, walking into organizations that have failed to do this on their own, or at least they feel like they failed to, and enforce what we would call a consent decree or a stipulated judgment, where they agree to fix the things that are wrong within that organization. And then probably the most popular model is cities and counties hiring some form of an auditor to audit how they review and enforce their use of force policies, and as well as have a citizens review board with various forms of authority. The most extreme would have subpoena powers and actually dictate authority or dictate discipline, and probably more moderately would be recommend policies or discipline. And so now we're seeing another trend as this evolves. As Cal DOJ increases its influence uh, throughout the state and uh, agencies, um, we're seeing agencies that haven't had to face this before look to constitutional policing to help address the concerns of the community as well as the state and the federal government. And Gene has been uh, part of that evolution. And so I asked him to kind of discuss his thoughts of where we were where we went and where uh, I believe we're going and some of the tools that you and your agency can use to better address the concerns of the public, state DOJ and federal DOJ. That was a big porch, Gene, but uh, does that kind of get us up to speed on kind of the history of how we ended up where we are today in the state of California? I think so. I mean, constitutional policing is not new. Everybody is using that term, but it's been around for quite some time because at its core, constitutional policing is basically policing with an understanding of the value of community engagement and protection of civil rights of all people. As you all understand and probably agree with, you must agree with, law enforcement agencies must follow the U.S. Constitution, our state constitution, court decisions, and other federal, state, and local laws and regulations. That's all constitutional policing is, is just follow the law. LAPD probably started the term constitutional policing after the Rampart scandal, and they began their new Bureau of Constitutional Policing. Orange County Sheriff's Department started constitutional policing uh, division. Other agencies are starting to do the same and hiring their own attorneys to provide advice on constitutional policing. It's mostly the large agencies because they can afford it, but 
It's the small to mid-sized agencies that really need to focus on this because you're right. We are seeing more intervention, not only by the federal Department of Justice, but in California, our state attorney general has become very aggressive in instituting practices and uh, policy and procedure uh, investigations against a variety of law enforcement agencies that we've seen. Uh, Bakersfield has a stipulated judgment with the Department of uh, uh, Justice for California and other agencies are engaging in these stipulated judgments as well. Uh, I think many agencies need to be careful and they do need to be conducting audits such as reviewing force encounters and doing assessments on de-escalation. What's the administrative process review? Uh, engage in a cultural competence and community engagement strategy. Uh, engage in an organizational assessment, executive leadership training, policy analysis and recommendations, frontline supervisor leadership training, strategic plan creation, and what is going on with current trends in law enforcement. Every agency should be doing that, but I think they're so preoccupied with what day-to-day obligations they have, recruitment, retention, trying to keep their populace happy with their law enforcement sometimes prevents them from being able to look long-term as to what needs to be done to keep the DOJ out of their department. So I think uh, agencies really need to be up to date on that and to look forward as to what can we do to make sure that the DOJ doesn't do a uh, practices investigation into uh, their particular department. Yeah. And again, sometimes we get caught up in spinning in the hamster wheel. Uh, It's ironic that no matter where you go in America, we are emergency responders prepared for the worst events, but we're staffed for when everything goes well. And so a lot of times these are the kind of things that can kind of get away from us as we respond, 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 putting fires out, dealing with crisis after crisis. And then we find that our policies are a little behind. Our procedures are a little behind. We're competing to keep up with the ever-changing laws and requirements by post and the legislature. And we have ever-shrinking budgets. So these are all challenges that we faced. But when Gene brings up those component parts, those are things that can be audited by the state, by the feds, can be audited during civil lawsuits for best practices, for failure to train, failure to supervise, negligent retention, retention, negligent selection, negligent retention. And so... When you look at those kind of core things to defend, this new, and actually correction on that, it's not a new battle space for law enforcement. It's just that there's a new generation. We've had a great exodus in our profession throughout the country. And we have new leaders finding themselves with challenges that they may be unfamiliar with. And those folks that have been around 20, 30 plus years have seen uh, the cycles the history of what our profession goes through. And so uh, that's where I would kind of jump back to leaning on people who've been in this profession for 20, 30 years and have seen similar challenges in other areas. And we can learn from those to apply them. My concern is when the DOJ comes in to do a patterns and practice investigation, it's going to be looking at culture. 
And that's something that everybody can deal with. For example, text messaging right now is the biggest issue, I think, impacting law enforcement. There are agencies in Southern California, Northern California. All you have to do is look at the local newspapers to realize text messaging of inappropriate comments, bragging about the use of excessive force, that's going to invite either a state AG investigation or a federal DOJ investigation. That's easily avoidable. Just don't do it. This is 2023, so when I see these agencies engaging in this inappropriate behavior, I got to shake my head and say, what are you guys thinking? Why are you doing this? You know better. We just need to stop it. So those are some of the things that are easily correctable. And then, of course, just updating uh, your policies and procedures to make sure they reflect current values and do some serious assessments of use of force. Yes. We can justify this, but why did we have to use this level of force to begin with? Did we exhaust all other options such that we were only left with this particular option? Again, explain your thought process and why we ended up using this particular level of force. Yeah, and if I can jump in there, it sounds makes me sound like a one-trick pony, but this is the art you know, of applying the science, right? The art, the art and science of tactics and strategy and really creating that asymmetry where you can articulate that you've manipulated everything you can, the time, the train, to place this adversary in a position where you use the least amount of force possible and never forget that this entire event could have been ended with simple compliance. Sometimes we forget to articulate that, that at any given time, someone could just comply with a lawful order from a lawful place and no force would have ever been used. I see that we're getting away from the Graham versus Connor reasonable standard. And as you look at these stipulated judgments entered into between public entities and our State Department of Justice, you're going to see the terminology of proportionality, necessity, de-escalation. They don't really talk about the reasonable standard. So you have to be able to articulate how your force was proportional to the threat you faced and that particularly in the use of deadly force, that it was necessary because there were no other options. You used your verbal commands, your command presence, your less than lethal options. And because of the suspect's actions, there was nothing left to use but deadly force to protect yourself and others from serious bodily injury and or death. We need to do a better job of articulating that because we have so many oversight committees, police commissions, and of course, uh, the DOJ is now investigating under the new law. Well, not so new now, but if there isn't a weapon involved, uh, the DOJ can come in and take over that investigation, which is a whole other uh, issue because a lot of their investigators just don't have the experience a lot of our local DAs Sheriff's Department, police departments have in investigating officer-involved shootings, and a lot of those agencies are having to teach the DOJ how to conduct those investigations because their personnel just don't have that experience, which creates problems in the long run. So there's a lot law enforcement can do right now to protect themselves. They just need to do a better job of explaining what they do. I think you'd agree with me, Gene, that the majority of the time, everybody's doing the right thing. I absolutely agree. They just fail to take the time to really articulate all the things that they had done. And and I know in my career, I did a lot of things I didn't even understand why I was doing them. They were really forms of de-escalation. 
And what Gene's referring to is Cal Government Code 7286, which talks about proportionality of force. And this, in my opinion, with, you know, very little legal training <laughs> and 25 years of law enforcement, my opinion, the proportionality is actually more restrictive than 835 itself. <clears throat> and what it's talking about, I'm trying to find it here for you so we can talk about it, but the amount of force that you use is proportional to the crime that you're investigating. So I, I'm not going, and I'll read it to you here as soon as I, I'm scrolling through the law here. I'm not saying that it has to be a fair fight, but you can't use force that would shock the conscience of the court compared to the crime that was committed. You can't shoot a jaywalker. And, and as we've seen, we've seen these travesties throughout the country where we have a disproportional amount of force used for the crime. And it's easy to get sucked into that, especially as the laws change. And every year, the laws change. There's things that were felonies that are no longer felonies, and we can't investigate them like they're felonies. A requirement that an officer may only use a level of force that they reasonably believe is proportional to the seriousness of the suspected offense or the reasonably perceived level of actual or threatened resistance. So listen to that again. This is proportional. A requirement that an officer may only use a level of force that they reasonably believe is proportional to the seriousness of the suspected offense or the reasonably perceived level of actual or threatened resistance. Now, when you really break that down, it's not much different than what we've already been doing, except for when we get our egos involved or we fail to articulate what we perceived. And so uh, we just wanted to kind of highlight that part. If your uh, agency does not have any form of uh, oversight, well, that's an independent auditor hired by the city manager or county supervisors or, a, I'm sorry, county administrator or civilian review or civilian oversight, know that that is by far the overwhelming trend throughout the Western states and America. And if those things aren't happening, what we're seeing is that either Cal DOJ or federal DOJ will come in or progressive leaders are seeking to find subject matter experts to be their auditors for them. And what we're talking about there is a lot, uh, number one uh, firm in the West Coast consists of a group of attorneys with a lot of experience. And uh, I've worked with them and uh, I've been a subject of their investigations. And they know what they're talking about, but they're not practitioners. And so what we're seeing is executives try to get ahead of this Again, to further demonstrate transparency and legitimacy, they're seeking attorneys that will build a team that consists of recently retired executives, middle managers, sergeants, use of force experts, a variety of people who have 
spent their lives building expertise, executing this in real life, and then combining that with academics and theory so that when we audit their agencies, there's some transparency and legitimacy there and some accountability, but it's framed within people that understand what's happening. You care to talk about that a little bit, Gene, and just kind of your experiences in civil court even, right? Where, where jurors, you spend a lot of your time educating jurors, right? Like, hey, this is what it might look like in a one-dimensional body-worn camera, but here's all the other factors. And then you might have an auditor who's an attorney and has never even been in a force simulator making decisions based upon public perception, the letter of the the intent of the policy. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if we were looking at best practices, we would marry those people up with practitioners, subject matter experts that understand that while the textbook may say this, and that's not wrong, there's a lot of other factors in play in these few seconds that people make split second decisions. This isn't rocket science. It may sound like it, but it really isn't. I think progressive law enforcement agencies, in order to protect themselves from a DOJ investigation, need to open up their department to some outside auditors to take a look and suggest best practices, to review their use of force encounters and say, hey, they did a great job, but did you consider ABC? And then train their officers and or deputies what those best practices are, and to do what they can to minimize the use of force. Because right now, in looking at these jury verdicts recently, they are staggering the amount of money that jurors are awarding because they're obviously upset at law enforcement for whatever reason. So we got to get them back on our side. And one way is through this transparency, springing some outsiders to look at our department, evaluate it, let everybody know, hey, this particular agency is doing a great job. And if they're not, let's fix it. Because you don't want to stipulate a judgment. Uh, it's going to cost you millions of dollars. And it's very difficult to fight DOJ. You just don't have enough lawyers or enough money to always fight them. So let's keep them out of your department to begin with. Let's do the right thing to begin with. And always reevaluate yourselves and how can we be better. I've been blessed to represent law enforcement, and I work with some really amazing people who've been involved in some very serious situations. But when I sit down with them and I prepare them for their depositions or trial, and they explain what their thought process was and why they used the level of force they did, I'm impressed with their level of knowledge, their dedication, and their experience and their training. I wish others can see what I see on a daily basis, of how professional you really are. Let's keep that going. That's my goal. Before I retire from this profession, I want all the public to realize just how hardworking law enforcement really is and how you really care about your communities and what you're doing. That's all I ask. And that's very consistent with, you know, really some of the best practices Cato's been espousing for decades, right? Absolutely. Have other teams come in and watch your training. Don't be embarrassed. Document it. Document, you know, your testing. Do independent testing. Have other teams come in and and you can write the scenario, you can write the rubric, what success looks like, what improvement looks like, and then have other people be your raters. Demonstrate you're not good because you said you are. You're good because you're meeting the standard. 
That's really what all this boils down to. It's just different versions of the same problem. So the more proactive we can be to have the people we pick come in and tell us, hey, here's some things you could be doing better. And then it doesn't count if you don't document it. And it doesn't count if you don't show it. Right. And that's the constant battle we have with after action reviews. So we have a lot of people saying, don't write after actions and and don't write them because we're giving them the stick to beat them with. And I'll let Gene talk because I, I got him fired up on that. But this is an age old problem. You're absolutely right. If you don't document how you fixed it, but very rarely do we have people write down an after action and it goes up the chain of command and it's not actually fixed. It's just that we don't write it down that we fixed it. And that really is why we have to have these auditors because we don't fix these things or we don't document that we fix them. And to, to piggyback on Gene, you know, culture, eat strategy for breakfast. You cannot legislate morality. So we have policies and procedures, but really what regulates it is your personal morality and the culture that tells you if it's acceptable or not. And you only have to look as recent history in our profession as Rampart to see how that culture can slip and when not supervised and not regulated can go, can go to some pretty dark places. And, and again, that's not saying that's it. I know that's an anomaly, but it's culture that we have to manage here as well. So thoughts on after actions, Gene? Those and are our defense. Don't skimp on your after action reports. They're not some super secret document. We have to produce those in a civil case as part of the discovery process. We're going to turn those over and that is our defense. So take the time to do it well. Typos inappropriate language, grammar, all of that comes into play. What was the tactical plan? What changed with that tactical plan? What did we do as far as delivery of force? What de-escalation techniques did we engage in? If force was used, did we provide immediate medical treatment? Um, all of that has to go into an AAR because I'm going to be asking for it. And the other side is going to be expecting it because they realize, again, just talking to tactical teams, but again, any gang warrant, homicide warrant, they're all going to have after action reports. Take the time to do it well because that is our defense. Because remember, the civil trial may not happen until two, three, four years after the action occurred. And you're going to have a million different interactions with people in between. How are you going to remember everything you did? Take the time to put it down that after action report because that's going to refresh your memory as we get ready for trial. Tell us the tactics we use, why we deviated from the original tactical plan and we had a uh, call an audible, so to speak. Why is that? And we did everything to de-escalate the situation. Again, the suspect escalated the situation. Let's put that down. Videos, audio, photos, whatever we can get to support our position should be part of that after action report because that's what I'm going to be using to put up our defense. Yeah, and if you you look at the definition of de-escalation, which we've all had, you know, multiple times throughout every year required by post. The definition of de-escalation briefly is to use time, distance and shielding. To use in an effort to use the least amount of force possible. So, time 
is tempo and density. Shielding, which I disagree with that term. I think it's obstacles. There's a lot of things you can use as an obstacle to create asymmetry. And then distance really is terrain. So distance is a measure of terrain. You don't have to use distance. There's a lot of ways you can use terrain to be a force multiplier. So you do use less force. And, and I think folks do it. They just don't call it that. We don't write it down that way. And until we find ourselves in civil or criminal court, where we have to have someone explain that. So those are all pretty consistent with stuff. I think um, I agree with Gene. When I have the opportunity to travel up and down the state or even outside of California, my batteries get recharged by the intelligence and creativity of the folks out there solving their community's problems. And it is amazing some of the folks we get to meet that are just in these communities, big and small, that are doing the right thing for their communities every day and coming up with just some awesome creative ideas to get people into custody the safest way possible. That is so true. I just defended the deposition of a young officer from a agency I won't mention, but he engaged in the use of deadly force. And he explained during his deposition why he had to use deadly force. And he didn't want to, but he was forced to given the actions of the suspect. And a young, young officer who's going to go on and do great things. And we spent several days preparing and he knew his policy and procedures. He knew his tactics. And it was an absolute pleasure representing that young officer. And again, I experience that almost every day. I deal with some really good people. So I thank all of you for doing what you do because fewer and fewer people are joining the ranks to do what you do. And so that's why I will do whatever I can to defend you. Just give me something to defend and I will fight as hard as I can for as long as I can. So thank you and keep up the fight. So before we go, if you want more information, uh, you want to talk a little bit more about time, terrain, creating asymmetry, articulating the things that I think you already do, that's all based in tactical science. Reach out to Cato. Uh, tactical science is part of every portion of our curriculum. It's based on uh, field command's work uh, in, the, in the textbook called Field Command or the primer called Sound Doctrine and uh, how you can leverage time and terrain to use less people, less resources, and less force. So thanks for listening. We hope uh, you got something out of this one. We will give you another update as soon as we get one in relation to California's canine law and also uh, at the federal level as things change there. Be safe out there. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catotraining.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catotraining.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.
Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catotraining.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catotraining.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.